So over the last several weeks here at Redemption, or several months now, we've been moving through the book of Acts. And if you look at the very beginning of Acts and Acts 1-8, Acts 1-8 sort of lays out the outline for what happens in Acts. It talks about uh, God's word, about the gospel going forth to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the, to the, ends of the earth. And so as we get to Acts chapter 25, we're at the very end of Acts. We're in the last part of Acts where um, the gospel, where God's word is going to the ends of the earth. And we've been in this, it's kind of a weird section when compared to the rest of Acts for the past couple of weeks where Paul is in, in prison, uh, he's constantly having to answer to some governmental authorities. He's constantly having to answer to these religious authorities from Jerusalem. He's constantly giving a defense of himself, um, even though he's done nothing wrong. And throughout that whole time of defending himself and declaring his innocence, Paul keeps just referring back to the resurrection. He just keeps referring back to Jesus. So what I want to do is just go ahead and read through Acts 25. There's a lot of verses there, but I'm going to go ahead and read through them all, and then we'll move uh, forward and talk through some of them. So I think the verses will be on the screen. You can follow along in your Bibles. Uh, I'm going to read it, like I said. This is God's Word from Acts 25. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priest and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. And Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. And after he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea The next day, he took a seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law or the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourselves know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face, And had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points 
of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and he tried and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who were present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Several years ago, after Amy and I were first married, uh, we were at a marriage conference. I think it was here in Augusta. I don't really remember exactly. Um, But the speaker was on stage, and he was telling the story about how uh, he was at a restaurant, and he had a child that uh, had maybe just turned 13 uh, a day or two before. And uh, so they were, they were looking at the menu, and on the menu it said something to the effect of kids' meals are reserved for kids 12 and under only. And, uh, and so uh, he knew, uh, or, or his daughter or whatever it was, wanted the kids' meal. The menu says... Uh, it's only for kids 12 and under, and so he and his wife started having a conversation like, well, she just turned 13, we can just say she's still 12, and she can get the kids menu, and, uh, and his wife looked at him and said, hey, um, is your integrity worth the two or three dollars that you're going to save by lying about your daughter's age? Um, that's kind of a biting question. And if my wife were to ask me that question, I'd probably get angry. Um, but it's a good question, right? And, um, and, and it's an interesting question to ponder. Like, wh- what does it mean to have integrity? What does it mean to be above reproach? What does it mean to be innocent? And something that's really interesting about this part of the narrative in Acts, chapters 23, 24, 25, 26, uh, constantly Paul, like I said a minute ago, is before these people having to answer for himself. And he's done nothing wrong. He's, he's constantly having to answer to himself, but nobody can find him guilty of anything. And the only thing they can accuse him of is speaking about the resurrection. And Festus, even in this passage, says, I don't even know what to do with that. How do I even investigate that? Because that's, that's not even a real thing to be charged with. Right? And so Paul really should have been let go by this point in the book of Acts because he has been found innocent. And even more so, they can't even figure out what to charge him with, which makes it a little more confounding that Paul appeals to Caesar. But we know that he does that to simply avoid being uh, ambushed by the, by, the, by the people who want to kill him. Right? So, so Paul is above reproach. And we see that idea throughout Scripture where believers are called to be above reproach. 
Um, in 1 Timothy 3.2, it says this about elders and overseers. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. That's what an elder or a leader, any leader in the church is called to be. They must be above reproach. Right, But it's not really just a call for those in leadership. It's not just a call on pastors and elders and deacons and other leaders. It's, it's a call for everybody. In fact, if you go further in 1 Timothy, where Paul just laid this out about elders and, and um, overseers, Paul goes on to make certain uh, that he tells Timothy uh, that the church needs to behave in such a way that it is above reproach. That's in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And, and so the call is for all believers to be above reproach, like Paul is in this passage. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is this, how do we answer the call to be above reproach? Because who here among us could say that we're innocent, right? If, if a movie of your life were to play on these screens behind me, right before our very eyes right now, who could walk away not being ashamed? Who could walk away not? Uh, who could walk away being above reproach? Right? If you just played my last week on the on the uh, on the screens up here, right? I'm not sure that I could walk away being above reproach, right? And the point here is Paul is as he's before these accusers and governing authorities is not necessarily. Um, that Paul had always been innocent and always been above reproach because Paul surely wasn't. Paul called himself the chief of sinners. We know that Paul uh, actually murdered believers before he became uh, a follower of Jesus. But the point here is that Paul is above reproach before his accusers in this passage and he's still being held prisoner, he's still being held captive. And I think part of what Luke is doing in this part, in this section of Acts, is simply to say, um, Paul is innocent. Luke, in a sense, is offering an apologetic for Paul, saying, Paul, Paul is innocent. Paul hasn't caused all these problems that he's accused of, and yet he's standing before kings and governors and all these religious authorities making an account for Jesus. And so we find ourselves in Acts 25 with Paul still being in prison. And if we think back to what Paul has been saying all along and what I highlighted a minute ago, then we know that for Paul, the resurrection had changed everything. For Paul, the resurrection made everything make sense. It all finally made sense and and it all finally came together for him. All of life began to make sense. All of Scripture began to make sense. And because the resurrection vindicated Jesus as King and Messiah, Paul is willing to stand before these religious leaders, stand before these governing officials, and say, Jesus is the King. Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Jesus is the Savior. It's because of Jesus that I'm saying the things that I'm doing. He's willing to stand before these people and speak truth. Right? When Paul was on the road to Damascus, if you think back... In the book of Acts, way back in the book of Acts, Paul is on the road to Damascus, and he meets God on the road. He meets the risen Savior, risen Jesus on the road, and he's blinded from this encounter. And so he goes on into town, and God essentially sends this person to him named Ananias um, to come and restore Paul's sight and to give Paul a little insight as to what's going on. And as God is 
sending Ananias to go to Paul, he says this to Ananias. Go for he, meaning Paul, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And that's where we find Paul in Acts 25, before kings, before Gentiles, and before the children of Israel, declaring God's name, declaring the resurrection talking about how Jesus was raised from the dead and how that changed everything. He's in prison, but he's doing exactly what God said he would be doing, carrying God's name to kings and Gentiles and the children of Israel, right? And and in Acts 25, Paul has been in prison for two years. Felix kept him in prison for two years. And where we pick up here, Felix has been recalled to Rome And if you remember, I talked about it last week, when Felix was recalled to Rome, it doesn't really recount it in the book of Acts, Felix faced death from the emperor for being a terrible governor in Judea. And so now Festus has been sent, Paul has been in prison for two years, and Festus shows up as the new governor of the province. That's where we pick up in Acts 25. And Festus takes a trip down to Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem was the center of cultural and religious life everything in Judea. And so Festus goes down there because he knows that he has to have a good relationship with these Jewish religious authorities. And so he goes to Jerusalem to meet with them because they have the potential to cause him a lot of trouble if the two of them aren't in a good working relationship and he wants to be in good. And these folks in Jerusalem are still concerned about Paul, right? Two years later, they're still concerned about Paul and they ask for Paul to be brought back to Jerusalem so that on the way he can be ambushed and killed. And Festus goes back to Paul. Some of the religious leaders come with him. They make accusations against Paul. Paul continues to defend himself as being innocent, and no one can prove otherwise. And ultimately, Paul doesn't want to go back to Jerusalem, because I think Paul has an idea That something bad is going to happen if he goes back to Jerusalem. So he ends up appealing to Caesar, which means he's going to get to go to Rome like he's been wanting to do all along, like the Holy Spirit had been leading him all along, that he's going to end up in Rome. And it's his right as a citizen to appeal to Caesar, and so that's what he does. He should have been set free by now. There's nothing anybody can prove him of, but he appeals to Caesar, and he's going to Rome, right? Part of the reason for that is Paul wants to get to Rome. It's God's plan. But we also can't miss the fact that Festus just wanted to bypass justice, do these religious leaders a favor, get Paul out of the way. And so Paul appeals to Rome to get to Rome. And then in the second part of Acts 25, this guy named King Agrippa shows up. King Agrippa is part of the Herodian dynasty. Um, He is the son of uh, King Herod that dies in Acts 12, a very terrible death. Um, He shows up with this person named Bernice. Uh, History tells us that Bernice is his half-sister with whom he had an ongoing relationship. Um, It's kind of weird. Game of Thrones type stuff going on there. And uh, Festus is talking to Agrippa about Paul, about the case against Paul, about sending Paul on to Rome. And he says there are no charges to send with him 
And the only thing Festus can come up with is this. And this is what he says. I'll read it again in verses 18 and 19. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. And then in verse 20, he goes on and says, I don't even know what to do with that. I don't even know how to move forward with that accusation. And so he and um, Agrippa talk, and the next day, uh, Agrippa comes back in. There's great pomp and circumstance with him and Bernice. In the next chapter in verse 26, uh, Paul has a conversation uh, or has to give a defense before Agrippa. But where Festus lands is the same thing uh, as the same place where everybody has landed about Paul as he's being accused of things. All along, Paul has been talking about Jesus and the resurrection because the resurrection changed everything for Paul and the resurrection is good news. And so all Paul can talk about is the good news of the resurrection. And the only accusations that can be made about him is that he keeps talking about Jesus. He keeps talking about the good news of Jesus. Right? When we read scripture and when we read passages like this, even in Acts 25, Acts 25 is an interesting passage. It's just a story. There's no sermon. There's no doctrine. Um, there's nothing to dive into here specifically. It's just a recounting of what's happening with Paul. And so when we come to a pretty difficult passage of scripture like this, it's just, it's just narrative. When we come to this to see what's happening, we can ask certain questions of the text to help us dive into the text and see what we can learn from it and what God can have for us in this passage because it's God's word. God recorded it for us. God has it for us. And so around redemption, uh, we like to talk about gospel fluency. Um, Gospel fluency, the idea that the gospel affects every area of life and um, and, and Scripture and the good news of Jesus impacts every area of life. And so when we come to Scripture, we can ask certain questions that come out of this idea of gospel fluency. We can ask these questions of the text to help us see what's there, right? And so four questions that we can ask of this text, even with it being just narrative, is this. Who is God? What does God do? Who are we? And what do we do in light of those first three questions? And so that's what I just want to do together this morning for the next few minutes. I want to ask you to go on this journey with me through Acts 25, and let's ask ourselves these questions of the text. But in a passage like Acts 25, where God is hardly mentioned, how do we answer the first question of who is God and what is God like? And one way that we can do that, I think, is by comparing Paul against the powers that be in this passage, the kings that be in this passage, like Acts 9 said that that, that Paul would be speaking to, right? If we look at the powers that be in this passage, these leaders are scheming and manipulative. Festus is trying to get favor with the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders are trying to get Paul Paul to get to Jerusalem so they can kill him. The Jewish leaders are coming to where Paul is so they can continue to accuse him of things, right? Agrippa shows up and to play a 
role in this, which he doesn't really, there's no place for him in that. There's just a lot of scheming going on, a lot of trying to gain favor with one another, to ask favors of these leaders between one another. And then Festus comes back and says, Paul, why don't you just go to Jerusalem? Right? Paul's just, Festus is just trying to make Paul go away. Why don't you just go down to Jerusalem, right? And there's just a bunch of scheming and manipulation, and for lack of a better word, there's just a lot of politicking going on among these leaders. But then on the other hand, there's Paul. Paul is in chains. He's a prisoner. There's no pomp and circumstance for Paul. Paul isn't scheming. He isn't grasping to gain some power. He keeps talking about Jesus and the resurrection because that's all he has in this moment, his innocence and Jesus and the resurrection. And in fact, he's gone there so much. He's talked about the resurrection so much that all Festus takes away from his conversations with Paul is that Paul keeps talking about this Jesus who was once dead and is now alive. And I think that what we need to recognize here is probably what Paul recognized. What we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that God is our Father, that God is in control, that in His power, God holds the past, present, and future. And Paul recognizes that. So he's more concerned about answering to God's authority and God's power than to these powers that be that are accusing him of anything. Right? The authorities in this narrative, they're scheming and manipulating in futility, ultimately, to glorify themselves. But Paul knows an authority higher than those who are confronting him in this moment. And he is confident in God's authority because God's authority isn't just a claim to power. It isn't just an idea of power. It isn't just a play for power, a play in the moment for some self-glory and to get what you want. It's real authority. Right? Because Jesus met, I mean, because Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and Jesus stood with Paul in prison, the same Jesus who was dead but is now alive that Paul keeps talking about. Jesus who died for the Father's glory and rose from the grave to defeat Satan's sin and death for all times, to display God's power. This Jesus called Paul and gave him a purpose. This Jesus made Paul alive with him. And Paul sees and knows who God really is. He's a God who is in absolute control and he's good. And Paul knows that Jesus has providentially made a way for us to be reconciled to God. He's taken care of our biggest need. And so now we can trust Jesus with everything else, right? So if we ask, what is God like? He is the true and better authority, who has demonstrated his power in a way that nobody else can by defeating death, the resurrection, not by manipulating and scheming, by defeating Satan's sin and death on the cross and through the resurrection. Who is God? He's a God of absolute authority and power. And so then when we can go and ask of ourselves the next question, what does God do? What does God do? In this passage, what does God do? The only mention of of God at all is about Jesus being alive, right? And and like I said, that comes from Festus' mouth as he speaks with Agrippa. The only thing Festus can say about Paul is he keeps talking about Jesus being alive. Because that's what Paul is 
is constantly giving testimony about that Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, fulfilled everything that God promised, and the resurrection is proof of that, even providing a way for God's people to be right with God because they couldn't do that on their own. Right, And Jesus is fulfilling God's promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to all of God's people. And it's just like it's recorded in Genesis. Let me read this to you. When um, God speaks to, to Isaac, Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven And will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And so if we ask the question, what does God do? In Christ, in the resurrection, it is proven he blesses the nations by calling them back to himself. Even at the cost of his own son, Jesus. Right? It's through the person and work of Jesus that we most see what God is like. And what he does. And it's what Paul keeps talking about. The resurrection. He defeated Satan's sin and death. That we would be right with God. And so then we can ask ourselves in this passage. What, who does it make us? Who are we? What does this passage say about who we are in light of who God is? And what God does? Right? And again, I go back to looking at the characters in this narrative. If we compare and contrast their behaviors... The powers that be in this passage, they are immoral. Agrippa has a relationship with his half-sister. They're manipulative. They are insecure. They're slaves to their own desire for power. That's their identity. They're power-hungry. That's who they are. They're slaves to themselves, to their self-glory. They're interested in building their own power and doing everything they can to solidify their positions of power and to gain favor with one another so that there are no issues and things can continue to just be the way they are. But when we look at Paul, Paul's behavior is above reproach. Paul is seeking the things of God, doing what God has called him to do, knowing that God holds everything together, and so that Paul doesn't have to scheme and manipulate and do all these other things. There's no need for that, because the place that Paul is operating from is the idea that God is the true and better authority, that God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus, that Paul doesn't have to be captive to the powers of this world. Because God who has power even over death is his father. And he is a child of God through Jesus because of what Jesus has done. And so finally we can ask of ourselves because of everything else in this passage. Because of who God is. Because of what God does. Because of who that makes us. We can ask of ourselves what do we do? In response to the identity that we have as God's children, what do we now do? And you see, through how Paul operates here, the answer to that question. He, he doesn't cower to any mere worldly authorities. He shows respect, but he doesn't back down from speaking truth. And that's what we talked about last week. And as he's examined, they go on to find him innocent. There's nothing to accuse him of as it relates to what they're seeking to accuse him of. And so part of what we do in response to who God is and what he's done and 
who we are because of what Christ has done for us is seen in the way that Paul is above reproach. We've already talked about that to a certain extent. And so I have to ask ourselves this question. Is being above reproach something we just need to do on our own? Do we just need to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps? Do we just need to do better and try harder? Is that what it means to be above reproach? I don't think that's the answer. Look at what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. This is, well, I'll read it to you. Colossians 1. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Wherever we are, how do we get to the point of being above reproach? Right? And, I, and I don't think it's just a matter of making it happen, of just getting it done, of just trying harder. If that were the case, then we would just become manipulators and schemers like these authority figures in Acts 25. I, I think the answer is the way that we get from wherever we are to being above reproach is by Jesus and by Jesus alone. You know how you become above reproach? It's through Jesus and only Jesus. And so the questions for us this morning are these, right? As we come to a close, the questions for us is this. Could we, like Paul in this passage, walk away from a similar trial being seen as above reproach? Could the only accusations against us be he keeps talking about this Jesus who was dead but is now alive? I'm not sure that could be the only accusation made against me. And if Jesus is the only way to be above reproach, then we have to ask ourselves this question. Do we know Jesus? Are we meeting with Jesus? Are we pursuing that relationship with Christ that Jesus has called us to? Do we know him? Are we submitting to what Christ has for us? Are we growing in that relationship with Christ? Are we submitting our lives to his authority? Or are we scheming and manipulating and trying to work things out on our own? Are we, are we trusting our own schemes and doubting God's authority, or are we trusting Jesus? Like I said, Acts 25 is a, is a difficult passage to preach through in the sense that it's, it's just narrative. But I think what we can take away from this passage is ideas like God is in control. God is good. The resurrection matters. It still matters. It still matters every day. God's authority is greater than any authority on this earth. And a relationship with Christ is how we get to the point of being above reproach, like Paul continues to be found innocent and innocent over and over and over again. So as we look at Acts 25, I believe that this is true. And part of the reason I believe it's true is because Jesus said it himself, that all of Scripture points to Jesus. It all points to Jesus. And so what we should be walking away from Acts 25 with is pondering what it means to be with Jesus in such a way that our relationship with him is growing, that we're becoming more and more like him, and that we're becoming above reproach because of Christ and because of what Christ has done for us. In the sense that Christ has already made a way for us to be right with God, but Christ continues to be with us just like he is with Paul in the jail cell. 
continuing to lead us where he would have us go, continuing to grow in righteousness to be more like Christ. And so as we enter a time of response, I would just encourage you to ponder those things. What does it mean to be with Christ? What does it mean to live with Christ? What does it mean to continue to submit to the authority of Christ in our lives? And where do we find ourselves this morning on that path and on that journey? We're going to enter into a time of response like we do every Sunday at Redemption. And during this time, it's an opportunity to respond to what Christ is doing in our hearts and minds. Uh, The way that we're going to do that is the band's going to come back up here, lead us in some songs, and give us an opportunity to worship through singing. We also have an opportunity to worship through giving. There's a giving basket in the back where you can put your tithes and offerings and uh, and continue to worship in that way. And, And that's what that is. That's trusting God and submitting to God's authority and and giving as an act of worship. We also have an opportunity to continue to worship by sitting where you are, by praying, by reflecting on on what God uh, is doing in your hearts and minds this morning. And we have an opportunity to take communion. We do this every Sunday. You can come down these side aisles, tear off the bread, dip it in the wine or juice, and in doing so, remember what Christ has done for us and proclaim to one another that we believe it. We tear off the bread remembering that Christ's body was broken for us. We dip it in the wine or juice remembering that Christ's uh, blood was shed for us. And then we do this to proclaim to one another that it's true and that we believe it. And so if remembering what Christ has done for you and proclaiming that you believe it and it's true is something that you can do, I would encourage you to come and take communion this morning. If you can't do those things, Let me encourage you to sit where you are and instead to hear what we're saying. Jesus is good. Jesus has done something for us. And Jesus is calling you into a relationship with himself. I'm going to pray for us and then we'll move on. God, thank you for um, your word. Thank you for uh, the reminder from your word that that Jesus has been raised from the dead and that changes everything. Thank you for your reminder from your word that the resurrection still matters and the gospel is good news for us and the good news of Jesus affects every area of our life. And Holy Father, even now as we continue to worship in the next few minutes, I pray that Jesus would continue to be exalted, that Jesus would continue to be lifted high in this place, that you would be honored and glorified and that we would be drawn to you. Amen.